Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priesthood priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so, we must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open, nor is this a task for one day or for two. For we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahil, and Jehaziah, the son of Tigva, opposed this, and Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levites, supported them. Thank you, Tassin. Thank you. Well, we are, uh, as we just read, in the book of Ezra, and this is a doozy of, of a passage. Uh, so I need to, I feel like I need to set the table a little bit and provide some story because unfortunately this is just a tough one for, for us. Um, has been misused, has been abused, has been misunderstood. And so I want to, I want to spend some time, uh, kind of going over, I think what is a much better, much more faithful application and understanding of this passage. So we are, uh, this is from the Old Testament, if you're not that familiar with the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and they close out uh, the entire Old Testament, basically. And as you get nearer to the end of a book, certain things are kind of presumed that you know, right? The plot and the the currents of that. So in in here, in our book here, some things that we should understand is just its context in the Old Testament. And in particularly... This is coming, uh, God's people, Israel, they have been in an exile, not in Egypt. They've come out of that exile. Uh, this is a second exile. They've been in Babylon, enslaved in Babylon, and King Cyrus allows them to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. Uh, that's a prophecy, a long-held prophecy that was fulfilled, but it fell short because the temple wasn't quite what it used to be. As Tristan said a couple of weeks ago, it's kind of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is has at least three false summits where things are looking really good, but but it just doesn't pan out as being the summit that they had hoped to reach. And so this is a second in our text uh, at the end of the book of Ezra. It's the second false summit uh, in these in these two books of the Bible. The arc of the Old Testament is to is to point to the reality 
that we are fallen, that fallen humans could not save themselves and needed a savior. And so everything in the Old Testament is based on the law, God's rules for living, and anything short of perfection is not good enough. And so over and over and over in the Old Testament, we see just how far short the people of God would fall. And this book is part of that story of God's people striving and failing and pointing us to this need for a Savior. So last week, Don introduced uh, kind of what's happening in chapters 9 and 10 at the end of the book of Ezra. Ezra is called to preach and teach and to reestablish the Israelites upon the Word of God. He's going to teach the Torah, and he's going to revive the faith of the people, and there's this great stirring up. It's a moment of reestablishing just the importance on, on God's Word. And there were even some clues, Don pointed out last week, of that this was a particularly exciting time. People were wondering about Ezra. Is this the new and better Moses that's, that's going to pave the way for um, just revival and uh, prosperity? And so Ezra comes and he discovers uh, at the beginning of the chapter 9 that the Israelites have intermarried with foreign women and they're not supposed to do this. And Ezra is torn up about it, and the end result is mass divorce. Uh, he confesses and confronts that Israel is in sin, and the solution that they come up with is to send away these foreign women and their children. With, without nuance or understanding, the thrust of these chapters seems to be cast off the wicked women and their children so that Israel can remain pure. Oh, good night. Uh, at first blush, I don't much like this text. If you're like me, uh, it's almost a visceral reaction to passages like this. And it causes, it caused me at different times to, to really question God. Really? That's what's best? Sanctioned divorce from the leaders of Israel? And it also seems like the Israelites were claiming racial superiority. And this passage has even been wrongly used to justify a position against interracial marriage. So it makes me uncomfortable. And I secretly wish that passages like this weren't in the Bible. But here's what I want us to recognize at moments like this. When we come to something in the Bible that causes us to chafe like this text did for me and likely does for many of you, we should actually get pretty excited about that. And there's, there's a good reason, so let me explain. We may be tempted to put this in a category of like things in the Bible that I don't agree with. Perhaps you've thought or said this, the Bible's full of lots of really good stuff, lots of good teachings, but I can't agree with all of it. I'm uncomfortable with the implications that may come from this, so I'm just going to skip over it. I'm just going to turn a blind eye because perhaps then there's maybe some plausible deniability. Well, friends, I think there is a better way. And I heard this great illustration this past week from a woman named Barbara Boyd of that approach, of why that approach would be the wrong one. She said, if you invited her to, you, to her house, or if you invited her, Barbara Boyd, to your house, and she showed up at the doorstep and you said, come on in, Barbara but stay out, Boyd. She wouldn't know what to do with that because she can't distinguish which half is Barbara and which half is Boyd. 
right? She can't differentiate and pull that piece of her apart. So she couldn't just bring in part of her. If you invite her over, you get all of Barbara Boyd or you get none of her. She then went in on a, in the same way, sorry, if you say, I'd like the, the loving God, the helpful God, the God I can ask for help in times of trouble, but I don't want this holy God, this pure God, the jealous God, the God who's all powerful. You're trying to separate God into only the parts that you like, and that's, that's just not the way God works. So she went on with this, this illustration. She said, let the thickness of a piece of paper represent the distance between the earth and the sun. This is off. This needs to be turned off. Use this one. Okay. Got it. Uh, where was I? The, the distance between the earth and the sun is the thickness of a piece of paper. So 96 million miles between the surface of the earth and the sun is represented by the thickness of a piece of paper. Do you realize that the distance between the earth and the next nearest star is a stack of paper 70 feet high? And the distance across just our universe is a stack of papers 310 miles long. That's staggering. But the point is that uh, Hebrews 1 says, Jesus Christ holds the universe together with the word of his power. He's so powerful, he just needs to speak and things happen. With somebody that powerful, do you ask them to be the assistant of your life? Or do you submit to that? In light of that, I think this is how we should respond as believers. If I'm uncomfortable with a passage, it's because it's pushing up against something that I wrongly believe. Do you see that? Either I have a wrong belief that needs to be corrected, or the Bible does. If you believe that the Bible is God's inspired word, and it's infallible, that's what we believe here at Table Rock, then the Bible doesn't have it wrong. We just saying, who can question any of his words? We take that seriously. We really mean that. God doesn't have it wrong. You and I have it wrong. We're the ones that need correcting. We're the ones that have a wrong understanding. We don't want to make the word of God conform to us. We want to be conformed to the word of God. So when we feel this tension, this discomfort with a passage, what a great opportunity for us to be sanctified, to see something new, to experience growth, to be conformed to God's word. We should lean into that. So that's some table setting. <laughs> Let me pray, and then we'll get into uh, actually what this, this passage means. Heavenly Father, we want to be conformed to your word. We want to be transformed in our thinking and our affections. So would you do that work in us? Especially when with a hard passage, Lord, would your truth reign? Would we rightly understand it? Would we not misapply it? But would your word just take root in our hearts and help us to see you as all the more lovely because of it. We pray this in your name. Amen. So Ezra has come to Jerusalem to preach and teach, and people are excited and anticipating favor and restoration and healing for Israel. They've got all the arrangements made. This was in last week. They've made it safely to Jerusalem, and God has protected them from any ambushes. They've weighed the gold and the silver, and they've made marks of how much they have. They've offered burnt offerings. Everything is like on this up and up. The tra trajectory is looking really good. And it seems like finally they're going to return to the glory days or even better, 
It might be the promised days that they've been waiting for, but in chapter 9, the wheels fall off. In at the very beginning of chapter 9, in verses 1 and 2, officials come to Ezra and they tell him that intermarriage has happened between Israelite men and non-Israelite women. And they, they list a bunch of different nations that are part of it. Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, uh, Amorites, and, and the officials categorize this intermarriage as faithlessness. And among the biggest offenders are the officials and the chief men. The question is, why is this a big deal? We may look at that and go like, so what? There's, there's some intermarriage going on. Well, it's a big deal because God has forbidden it. And Deuteronomy 7 would have been a very familiar text to them. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 3, it says, You shall not intermarry with them them being the very names I just listed. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Why? For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. So Ezra hears this news and he is just appalled at it. In in 9.3, he tears his cloak, he tears his garments, he starts ripping out his beard and his hair. He's so angry and disappointed and ashamed at the state of his people because this is an egregious and obvious act of disobedience. And there's, the threat is not because a bloodline is polluted, but because faith in Yahweh is being polluted and abandoned. I want us to really clearly see this. The situation here in our text is not about race. There is zero room in, in Christianity for racism. I say that with great confidence. It cannot be about race. For one thing, in other places in the Bible, we, we see intermarriage between non-Israelites and Israelites, like Ruth. She's a Moabite. That is on the list that I just read. And she marries Boaz. She's welcomed in as an Israelite. We also have Rahab, a Canaanite woman, a prostitute Canaanite woman. Canaanite is another name that was on that list who is also welcomed as an Israelite. Both of those women chose to leave their false idolatry and the the gods of their people and to worship the true God, Yahweh, instead. It also cannot be about race because in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The race here, we have to understand the race piece of this. It's not about ethnicity. It's not about skin color. It is about faith in God. And if you have that, you are part of this race. You are part of this household. You are part of God's people. Skin color doesn't get you in. Ethnicity doesn't get you in. Worshiping the Lord God is what qualifies you. Following Jesus Christ is the entry requirement and the only entry requirement. It's not about ethnic purity. It's about the negative influence of unbelief and belief in idols. And the worry is that this is going to permeate the faith in the one true God, contaminate not their racial purity, but their religious purity and dedication. And on this point, just quickly, this is still the case today. 
The Lord remains concerned about marriage between someone who doesn't believe in him and someone who does, does believe in him. It remains an issue for believers to grapple with in our present time. It wasn't abandoned in the new covenant. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We were once there, but we're not. We're now children of the light once we're in Christ. I think this is a well-known instruction among Christians, but I think it's all too often ignored. So here in our text today, a warning to not enter into this temptation. If you're unmarried, don't seek marriage to one who doesn't believe in Christ. However, I also have to add this, if you're already married and your spouse doesn't believe in the gospel, the consequences are not the same as what we read in Ezra. It would not be, we, we would not advocate for you to get a divorce there. So that's an aside. Back to our text, uh, Ezra repents to the Lord. He owns this sin himself. In, in chapter 9, verse 6, he says, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush my face, or blush to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. And he closes out this prayer of repentance. Chapter 9, verse 15. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Ezra may not be sure what to do at this point, but he knows that repentance is the right path. This sin has created a huge conundrum for Israel, and there's, there's no good options. Ezra knew that he could not allow these marriages to continue to happen at a minimum because it's going to dilute, dilute the spiritual remnant of Israel. When they came out of Egypt, there were 600,000 Israelites that came out of Egypt in the first exodus. This exodus out of Babylon, there's 50,000. The number of people following Yahweh is dwindling, but there is a remnant, and this remnant needs to be faithfully following the Lord. So these marriages to women who follow idols have dire consequences, so they can't just ignore them. We looked at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. The second part of that I didn't include. It says, For the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. So Israel is staring down the barrel of destruction, and they're wondering if God's finger is on the trigger. That's the negative view. They're facing harsh judgment. There's also a positive view of their situation, which is that following God's ways is the best path of life. It leads to life. The path of obedience in the Lord is beautiful. And they've strayed from that path. They want to get back to obedience because it's right. It's the path that leads them by still waters and restores their soul. The comforting presence and protection of God. So option one, allowing these marriages to continue, is not a tenable option. And I don't know if Ezra even had a second option in view. He just knew they were in a very bad spot. And it's into that that we see this kind of stage right entrance of this guy named Shechaniah. In, ver- in chapter 10. And in, he provides uh, option two, which is to require those who have married foreign women to divorce and to send away these foreign women and their children who would potentially pollute the faith in the one true God. So in chapter 10, verses 2 through 4, that's what we read. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, 
We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and those who tremble at the commandment of a God. Then let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. I recently caught a, a piece of a documentary about a football team and, and the coach, and he had the coach was trying to build this certain culture, and he had one player on the team that was really working against that culture. So he calls his team meeting. All the team, all the coaches are together, and they, he casts off this player because the player was a cancer to the culture that he was trying to build. He just said, pack your things and go. You're off the team. And I think that same thing is going on here. The beliefs and the practices of these foreign, foreigners were a cancer to the faith of the Israelites, drawing people away from God and towards idolatry. So Shechaniah's suggestion to require divorce and then send off these foreign women and even, even their children uh, is, is a hard one. But that's what he's seeing. That's what Ezra is seeing as well. So Shechaniah and Ezra and all of Israel would have been well aware of just how heartbreaking this option would be. So we have option one and now we have option two. Option two is also a terribly undesirable choice. It requires breaking apart families, cutting ties with wives and children, completely sending them off. They're no longer a part of Israel. If I was to create an allegory from chapters 9 and 10, it would be a house fire, which, of course, it would, right? I, if you don't know me, I am a firefighter, so fairly unimaginative. But uh, go with me. The, the house represents all of Israel, and the house has a fire burning in it. And, and the occupants are the ones that lit this fire, being careless with matches. The fire is a, the wrath of God. And if it's left unattended, it's going to consume the entire household. Lives will be lost. The house will be reduced to ashes. And this neighbor, Ezra, he sees it and he comes pounding on the door and he's like, get out, you're going to be consumed. Well, the people inside have a choice. They can stay put, ignore the fire, ignore the warnings, and thus be consumed, or they can heed the warning and exit. But there's a catch and the catch is that in order to exit safely, some are going to have to exit out the back door and some are going to exit out the front door. The fire has exposed a necessary separation. Survival can occur for everybody, but reunion cannot. The house fire produces no good choices, but life and escape seem better even given the necessary separation. So Ezra and the leaders decide to go with option two. They decide to send away the pagan women and their children. And so they make this decision. Ezra withdraws and he fasts and he prays. And then he issues a proclamation to Israel with some pretty severe consequences. If you're following, this is in chapter 10, verse 7. And, and a little bit following there. This proclamation calls for everybody to come to a gathering in three days. And anyone who doesn't come forfeits all of their land and forfeits their belonging to Israel. So the message is of this proclamation, if you consider yourself an Israelite, if you consider yourself part of this remnant, you better be at this meeting. And our reading today is it covers what happens in this meeting that, that he called for. 
And what a scene. This remnant of Israel is gathered and it is pouring rain. Everyone's soaking wet and cold and they're trembling, not just from the cold, it says, but also from the weight of this situation. It is dark and dreary and cold and gloomy. The weather matches the mood of this meeting and Ezra confronts the sin of Israel and calls for confession and repentance. And the people agree with this plan that will require divorce. And I've been just, I've been using the word divorce, which isn't in the text, but I think we can say that's what's happening here. So I'm going to keep using that. The people agree, but they had suggestions for how to go about implementation. They're like, Ezra, it's pouring rain and this is not a fast matter. This is going to take us some time. So they come up with a plan by the end of this meeting which is that the officials in each area were, were tasked with investigating and ruling. And again, this makes it obvious that this is not about racial purity because that would have been fast. Right? Had it been about race or purely ethnic intermarriage, that wouldn't take investigation. That'd be quick. It took thoughtful interviews and interactions. The question must have been, does this person believe in the God of Israel or in idolatry of other gods? Presumably, if the spouse affirmed Yahweh as the true God and renounced their pagan ways, nothing further would have, would have happened. If the woman worshipped other gods, however, she and her children were, were cut out and sent away. And the book closes, the book of Ezra closes with this being done. This other second false summit for Israel. What a dark, dark season for them. They carry out the interviews. They send away the women who were diluting the spiritual purity of Israel. And it's hard for me to imagine just the gut-wrenching heartache that occurred. Some of you know it all too well. The soul-deep cries that must have gone up. Having experienced divorce firsthand or been the children of divorced parents is absolute anguish. And yet, while those consequences were severe... Israel made the choice to follow the Lord despite those. They surrendered to his ways. They put their faith in his plans. Despite the consequences of their sin, they knew in their bones that God was worth it. So what can we take from this text? That's, that's just going through it and what's, what it says. I think I have three lessons for us today. First, this is not a new one for us. We have to take sin seriously. Look at Ezra's reaction. He, is, he tears out his hair. He tears out his beard. He rips his clothes. He's just like, no! Sin has gotten in again. And that's just not my normal reaction to sin. I don't usually weep and get super upset. I don't th- know that I've ever torn my clothing or my hair out. And I don't know that we need to do what Ezra did there. But one thing is clear, he took sin very seriously, and all of Israel took this sin super seriously. We, we often want to run and focus on the grace side, and that's a good thing for sure to focus on, but not at the expense of minimizing our sin. We love the words of Exodus chapter 34. It says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But we can't ignore the second half of verse 7. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. 
That's sobering. We can't welcome in Barbara but leave out Boyd. When we submit to the lordship and the authority of Jesus Christ, we sign up for all of him. His grace, his mercy, his love, yes, but also his purity, his holiness, his perfection, his power. It's all intertwined. It's all part of who God is. And it's all really necessary for us, for our good. Ezra and the the Israelites understood that the wrath that was coming, if they did not confess and repent and change, they wanted to avoid fierce wrath of God. And I think it's noteworthy that there's no excuses in this text. There's no rationalization of their sin or explanations or special considerations given for particular circumstances. We have to take our sin seriously. When you're confronted with your sin and when there's only bad options because of your sin, I hope, like Israel, you choose to follow Yahweh. I hope you conclude with the Israelites that following God is the better way. And in case you missed it, look at Shechaniah's words again in verse 2. I don't have this up here. You'd have to look in your Bible. He acknowledges the situation in candid terms, but then he says this. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. No matter how deep a hole you find yourself in, there is always hope. Even if you're in a hole that you dug and the shovel's still in your hand, you are not without hope. You are never, ever, ever without hope. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. That's the closing song for us today. Our sins, they are as many, but his mercy is more. You're never beyond the saving reach and the forgiveness of God. And if you've repented, I hope you believe deep down in your bones. I hope you feel, feel it. There's just the forgiveness and the release that we have because that's just as important. In Christ, we've been released from guilt, washed clean, sins removed, no wrath coming for you. So takeaway number one is to take sin seriously. The second lesson is that sin has terrible consequences. Our creator made rules for his creation, and those rules are for our good. When we choose to break them, things don't go well. That's what sin does. That's what sin is. Disobeying God's decrees is sin, and sin makes a mess of things. God did not lead the Israelites into this dilemma. Their sin did. He warned, explicitly warned against it. If they'd have obeyed, they'd have been kept out of this dilemma. God has a design for his creation, a current to the universe. If you swim against that current, it's going to be a difficult swim. It's going to be a life-taking swim. It's often going to be a swim that comes with very real and very messy consequences. God remained with the Israelites. He remained with, remains with us, but there's still consequences that we have to live with. That's what sin does. It creates a mess of things. And obedience isn't always easy. In fact, it's often very difficult, but it's far less messy. It's far more life-giving. God's rules are not a denial of good things. They're, they're to set our hearts upon better things. Third lesson is we can see what to do when we are confronted with sin in our lives, a pattern for repentance. Shechaniah's word again. Uh, This is verse 4 in chapter 10. I think it's so helpful. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. There's five parts to, to his sentence there. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. 
Be strong and do it. I want to look at each one of those five really quickly. Arise. Get up from the sin. Get up from your practices and leave them. Don't sit in the sin. Get up from it. Turn to a new way. Arise. It is your task. It's nobody else's task. It's yours. Don't wait to be rescued by others. Don't blame others. It's yours. Own it. I love the third part. We are with you. It's your task, but you're not alone. We are with you. It's yours to own, but we're going to be there too. We, you have brothers and sisters in the faith to help and encourage and ex- exhort and support and love you through any battle. We are with you. Be strong. Number four, be strong. It takes courage to confess and repent, to confront our sins. It takes strength to walk in a new way. But God, in other parts of the Bible, promises to give us the strength. And it's a strength that we can lean on. He provides it. But we have to lean into that strength and not quit. And and part five, do it. Don't just consider it. Don't just be convicted and then make a little effort, but don't see it through. See it through. Commit to it. Commit to turning from the sin. And repent and then walk it out. I think this is a true, these five things arise for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Those are good. They're still true today, but I think it's an incomplete picture because we also have the New Testament. We have Christ intervening for us who intervened for us. Our sin has a consequence, but Christ took that consequence for us. So going back to that house fire illustration, now I want you to picture yourself. You are the one that is trapped in the fire. And your house is ripping, as we say in firefighting. The place was ripping. Your house is ripping, but your door is closed. But you can see fire starting to peek through the door jam. And you can't get out. Jesus goes in. He has no firefighting protection on, no air tank, no turnouts, no helmet, no gloves. He just goes diving in and he makes the grab. He scoops you up in his arms. And he goes back to the window and he hands you off to the Father. He says, this one gets to live. As soon as you're out into the clean air and that handoff is made, the room flashes over and Jesus is consumed. But because of his protective grasp of you, you've escaped unscathed. No burns, no smoke inhalation, totally fine. Spiritually speaking, you are completely forgiven, not a spot or blemish because of Jesus. He gave his life for us, our life for his life. Our sin has consequences, the greatest of which is death. We deserve to die, to be consumed, to be cast out the back door and separated from God because of our sin. But Jesus provides this way of escape. And that's what we get to celebrate at the end of our service every week is communion. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. Uh, In communion, we remember Christ's sacrifice for us, not in a fire, but on a cross. And admittedly, my, my fire analogy has lots of problems. If you dig too deep, deeply into it, it's imperfect. But not so the cross. The cross is perfect. And even better, it's real and it's true. In communion, we remember that Jesus took our sin upon himself. He absorbed God's wrath so that we don't have to. So if you're a believer... We invite you to participate in communion with us. 
take a piece of bread, take a cup as it passes and hold on to those. I'm going to come back up and, and lead us through communion. But if you're not a believer, we'd ask that you would not take a piece of bread and, and let the cup pass from you. Consider instead coming to Christ that first time, confessing for the first time that he is Lord. Today, this morning, even right now, I'd encourage you with these words, arise, for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. And for all of us, even now, there is hope. Let's pray. God, thank you for the hope that we have in you. That even in hard texts, we can see your grace. We can see your promise. We can see our need. We can see the gospel getting played out. And you come to rescue. Lord, we thank you. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.